I mean, enough of that all day long. That's just the world today. Where do you get your news? I happen to go to the source, which is Alex Jones. He seems to be ahead of everybody else uh, somehow. And uh, yeah. So anyway, today's episode is uh, Jerry Love. Jerry Love, beautiful name. Uh, she's actually from Japan. She's an author of uh, A Gift from Adversity uh, book, uh, but it's also a podcast. So it's the same name of the podcast. Uh, she does it all. She's a musician. She's a journalist. She's a model. She's an actress. Actress, a single mom, and uh, she just recently started a movie, uh, Don't Look Up, a political movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, her and her son. Jerry Love and her son starred in this movie. So excited to talk to her, our first actress, famous actress of a great blockbuster film. I don't know if it's great yet. I haven't seen it, but I hear good reviews. So here comes Jerry. Jerry, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I was just saying that uh, you're my first uh, superstar actress to oh, uh, join this podcast. <laughs> oh, God. No. Or, or superstar musician or superstar journalist or superstar model or a single mom, which is probably the hardest job. Thank you. Yeah. So amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. I'm here in North Carolina and you're up in Boston area, correct? Correct. Yeah. So I already did the intro. Uh it's already it's already going. So we're we're ready to roll um with everything. I know you I, I prefaced this before that you are the author of a gift from adversity book but your podcast there it is and your podcast is also the same name correct why'd you choose the same name for the podcast you know with the book that's an interesting choice so i wanted to create a platform where people can safely talk about adversity and a lot of times people shy away, especially talking about, say, sexual abuse, abuse, domestic violence, because they're afraid of the perpetrator or consequences. But after I published my book, a lot of people messaged me in the middle of the crisis or shared their sexual abuse experience, which I never had no idea that this person had the similar experience like me. So I felt compelled to create a platform uh, corresponding to my book's title, A Gift from Adversity, not only creating the platform for people to talk about adversity specifically, but the tools that they use to overcome it and a gift that came from it. 
And the reason why the tool is important is I suffered so much from the PTSD and depression, and I didn't know what kind of modality that I should use to heal myself, and I tried them all. So I felt compelled to have a real people who went through the adversity, who um, got basically um, out of it in a way that what is the tangible tools that they use to get to the other side and then what's the gift that came out of it so I didn't want to just make like whining complaining I had this miserable life type of podcast but also empower other people you're not alone but also how do you get out of it and then what kind of tools that you can use yeah and you're also you're a, a, a pianist correct a very successful pianist thank you is is that is that one of the tools that you used to help you get out of it and at what and at what age did you start playing the piano sorry I didn't mean to ask two questions at once what let's answer the first one was that a therapy for you playing the piano a part of your healing process yes yeah, so growing up getting abused by my um, father when I was playing piano he didn't bother me so, and also I didn't know anything about mental health or how to, um, I didn't even know that I was getting abused. Like it was like just unknown thing. Like there was no name and I just felt very sad and didn't know what was going on, but I went to the piano and I started to play. And every time I felt uh, really, uh, every time I played piano, I felt really good and then felt really connected. So ever since then, say I compose music, or I just improvise, but then I went to Berkeley College of Music and I learned more tools to be able to, in a way, advocate myself and I'm feeling through the music using these tools of arrangement or different um, techniques to um, do that. And and what age did you start playing the piano? Was it at the, at the very young age? Just at three years old? Oh, wow. Okay. Is that that's normal in Japan, right? Like I'm right to uh, start something uh, at a very, very young age, right? Like something very difficult so that, that you can start very early. Am I wrong about that in, in, in the in the culture of Japan? Yeah, I would say so. A lot of people start early, but my case it was a little bit different because my mother had a rock cafe and then she was um playing Janis Joplin, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix in Japan. This is like in like 80s. And okay. then uh, I grew up with those kind of music and like toddler lullaby music. So it was very loud. And then she had a rock band and then she asked me to be a keyboardist for her band. So I was practicing with them. So my first concert was when I was four. Wow, that's amazing. So you started with a keyboard? Uh, and then moved on to the piano. Piano, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I didn't know how to read when I was in the band. So I was just like, you know, doing by ear, and now just playing. And do you just still do that by ear? No, I'm pretty. Do you read now? Yes, I'm pretty professional uh, pianist, and I've um, learned so much, and I can sight read pretty much everything. 
So would you say if you're starting out as a pianist that you go by ear first and then learn how to read? Or would you suggest learning how to read first and then go by ear? Or does it vary? Um, I would say vice versa. And then to be honest with you, some of the greatest musicians I've toured with, they didn't know how to read music. It doesn't matter. I think at the end of the day, that if you read music or not, that if you can play good music, I don't think it matters. And the benefit of so when I went to Berkeley College of Music it was kind of interesting because um, some of the musicians were um, very fluent in classical training, reading music, sight reading, but some of the musicians were not. And then also some people from the classical background, they don't know how to improvise. They didn't know how to read a lead sheet, and then myself included. And I, I just didn't know how to um, play chord. And then I just have to uh, learn that and then I have to uh, learn how to not be scared to improvise and it just um completely different animals when you are thinking about reading but what is the reading actually actual notes or code um like I don't know um what what you're talking about but I think in the end of the in, at the end of the day I think it doesn't really matter as long as you can play and it sounds good and then you're hired for the national tour I don't think it matters at the end yeah my brother just started playing and he's uh he does both he reads and then plays and then he makes up his own things and he plays uh and he's he's very new at it but he's actually very good at it I would love for maybe uh, you to give him some feedback or something because he's very into it right now. Um, but we're not here to talk about my brother. Uh, the The question that I had for you with uh, the playing uh, of the piano as a type of therapy is that you started a nonprofit to help juvenile offenders. Correct. Now, were you focusing on those juvenile offenders being sex offenders or or just any offenders? I mean, did you tackle the problem that tackled you at a very young age or just any offender to play to play the music? Because I have a second question after that that I want I want to know. So when I started Genuine Voices, a nonprofit organization, I didn't really specify what kind of crime and their backgrounds are. I just wanted to help. And I just wanted to um, have music as kind of escape way for the juvenile offenders when they were in the detention program. And I didn't really, like sometimes you have to read their background and sometimes you can't. And then, you know, profile, like I don't, I really, really care in a way because they're all kind of in the program right now, and I didn't even like think about who's who. Later on, maybe somebody informed, oh, this kid got locked up because of the, you know, sex offender offense or something. So I, we didn't like really care in a way, um, but we were in general trying to use music as a tangible, measurable outcome to overcome these challenges that they're having um, and give them mental like you no know, kind of a break and also tangible outcome through that building self-confidence and sense of ownership 
and that would eventually lead to resilience. And our goal was really to reduce the recidivism. So that's what I have done for the 12 years of my life. So, what, what did you say just a second ago? Tangible, what was it? Measurable outcome. Tangible, measurable outcome. Is, would that be very similar to just saying something different that occupies, occupies your time versus the other things that you're normally thinking towards? Or am I getting that wrong? So tangible and measurable outcome is some of, some of the terms that we use for grant writing. What happens is there's hard data and there's a anecdotal data when you are writing that grant. And a lot of times foundation asks what is from point A to point Z that you had changed the youth or the clients through your nonprofit. So tangible means fake, plain twinkle, twinkle, little star. It's tangible. You can like see and then measurable. You can measure. Uh, yeah, I got to learn this song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And outcome, what is the outcome? Positive or negative? So from scale one to 10, we sometimes did the survey, like, you know, how did you feel afterwards? And then so tangible measurable outcome is some of the term that I learned along uh, with researchers. And then I worked with academics. So I worked with um, Dr. J. Brustein. We published a book called Playful Life. And I was at the conference for International Association Pop Studying Popular Music in Rome, Italy. And then we all talked about, like, you know, how can we help in a tangible way? And then the way, say, when I was doing, when I'm doing the podcast, I always ask um, my guests, what's the tangible tool you use? Um, so something that you can, you know, feel. Okay. I think, like, obviously, it's beyond my level of expertise or knowledge. So um, I just kind of wanted to get a because I feel like that any 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 uh, let's just say an addiction, it could be towards uh, drugs, it could be towards sex, it could be right. Like it's a pattern that a human being is on, right? It's a circular pattern. And you have to break that pattern in order for them to change their lives. So then you have to kind of institute, and I guess that's what I was asking, is you kind of have to institute another thing that they are interested in, say it's music, art, you know, rock climbing. It could be anything so that their mind starts to get out of the circle that they were that they were in. Is that you think am I right around the same area? So what happens is a lot of youth, or a lot of like a lot of us, like you know, people who went through adversity, we have this lack of confidence or uh, self-esteem issues, and I do have that also. So to break that in a way is to help what I'm talking about, tangible measurable outcome, is say teaching music or producing the music, and that's like measurable you can see it or the cooking yeah. so you can see the outcome and you can see the feedback now what happens is it would feed your confidence and a sense of ownership and a sense of self-esteem and when it increases that becomes that adds to the resilience and what happens is a lot of youth that we taught because of so much of challenges that they are facing at their home or neighborhood that they sometimes feel the detention program is better than their home. 
um, because they have food, they have counselor, they have like you know school where they don't get killed basically. But then when they go back to the community, they kind of go back go back to the same like you know circle of friends and partner. But uh, we've seen the breakthrough. We've seen the breakthrough of some of the kids that we taught and uh, some of the kids that I'm in touch with because we taught them music and then that gave them a lot of confidence where they go back to the community, but they feel, okay, I'm different. I can do something. And then Mm -hmm. the confidence boost. And then some of them actually started clothing company. Some of them like, you know, pursued like a medical field. And then we encourage them to do that. But even like twinkle, twinkle little star, it's a triumph that you can play it and then or guitar production. We've done a lot of hip hop productions and it's such an empowering experience. And then to me as well, like whenever I compose music or sing or release a song, it's such a measurable outcome that mm-hmm. I feel confident and that is feeding my self-esteem that was destroyed or violated growing up being abused. Right. And and I guess, is that a therapy then for both the victim and the victimized? Like, or the, the one caught doing the, uh, I don't think I read that right. Is that a therapy for both the victim and the one who is needing to change their behavior so that they don't victimize anybody else? Does that make sense? So are you talking about teacher and student? No, I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about, let's just put your example into place. Would that be a therapy that would be viable for your father and viable for you together? Or or are we only talking about the victim in that particular therapy? So so the detention program, the Junior Voices nonprofit that I was doing, we were specifically talking about the offenders and then their environment that was destroyed leading up to committing crime. So they had, they, a lot of them, when you like talk to them, um, their father got killed, their mother is in jail, a lot of adversity that thrown at them and then they had to grow up so quickly and then they end up committing crime because of that situation. So we didn't necessarily like focus on the perpetrator or the family environment, but we focused on what we can touch, we can like, you know, change, which is individual needs and, um, you know, feeding the confidence and then complimenting them, which I think they don't hear it much in that setting or maybe growing up. So I think, um, oh, you did a great job. This song is amazing. Like, you know, those are the things. Um, one great example is there's one offender um, who was considered one of the worst or most dangerous um, juvenile offenders in Massachusetts since, since like 14 years old. Like he's been there for like several years. And then we started this program to donate song to pediatric cancer um, patient who was doing the GoFundMe, the family was doing GoFundMe. So we picked that boy and then we asked um, the offenders to donate the song for this boy who's suffering with the cancer. So obviously a lot of times they want to do gangster rap and they swear and the money and, and sex and drugs and all that stuff. But then obviously you can't write that. So he ended up writing this most beautiful rap and lyrics, which nobody expected him to write. And then we had a fundraiser. We got a special community pass for him. 
and he was accompanied by assistant director to come to the fundraiser at Berkeley College of Music. And we had a um, nonprofit contemporary dance company choreograph his song. And he wrote this beautiful letter to um, the attendee of the fundraiser, how music and genuine voices helped him in the detention program. And he saw the dancers and we were just crying. It was yeah. just so amazing, such an empowering moment. And he definitely rehabilitated that's the tangible, measurable outcome that I'm talking about. You right. can see, and yeah, then you no, totally. feel a confidence through it. And then, in at the end of the day, no matter what kind of bullying, what kind of adversity throwing at you, how you how do you react to that? And then, how are you resilient? How are you strong? And you know how you handle the situation. The most important thing because you don't have to react. So they are throwing at like really hard environment to start with. But now in the detention program, we did the music, not therapy, like music kind of transformation. I would say then like when they go back to the community, um, they can handle it. And then also, one of our board of director was probation officer in Dorchester, where it's like a high crime area that he told me, Jury, I know you want to change the world, but you have to change one person at a time. Because if you can change this one youth who are absolutely violent, if they go back to the community and start a positive change, it's a ripple effect. And the ripple effect would change the community. And that's what you're doing. And he actually, during the interview, TV interview said, Jury came and they replaced the sound of gunfire to sound of music. Well, that's what well, I was going to disagree with the guy that told you that. I think that you're onto something. I think that you can change more people at the same time with the gift of music. The gift of music can affect many, many people much more than just one individual at a time. So while I respect, you know, the guy that told you that the information, uh, yeah, focus one at a time. I. To be honest with you, I, I like your method better, and I think you can affect more people with a wider range because of the music. I think the music can change a mass. Now, if you're just doing one-on-one -on -one therapy, of course, you're just going to focus on one at a time, but do we even really have that much time to change everybody? Like, you know, you're trying, you're trying to get everybody changed quick and music is probably the vehicle that God chose for you to utilize that for the whole reason you went through all of this maybe is because of the music that, that God gifted you to be able to share with a lot of people, not just one at a time, maybe one group at a time, maybe that's a fair. Yes, thank you. And I'm very proud. Um, so the Genuine Voices nonprofit itself closed after 12 years of operation. However, there's a program that I started in 2001, right after the 9-11 happened in Dorchester at the Boys and Club, Girls Club. I started with six children and teaching music with like four volunteers. I got all the equipment donated from Berkeley College of Music, and uh, we were teaching music in the closet area. Now, 20 years later, that program like got $100,000 donation from some IT a rich person and they built an entire floor a half the floor dedicated to music program sixty thousand dollars recording studio all this music equipment 
and there are about 600 students taking the music lesson yearly. And they were nominated for the best music program of Boys and Girls Club of America. <laughs> so yeah. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, and that's still going today? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. My daughter, I have a, go ahead. You want to say yeah, something? No, go, go, go. And then actually, I was interviewed by a Japanese TV show, and it was watched like 7.5 million people. The Japanese TV crew followed me and then just made my life story. And then one time we went to the Boys and Girls Club, and I met this boy, Deshaun, and he just lost his father two days ago before we went to film by gun violence he was just fixing his car and then the gang gun violence bullet like just um shot him and then basically died and then he was playing drum drums and i told him i started it and he just thanked me looked dead in my eyes and then this saved my life and because ever since he was a kid he was playing drums and he went to boston arts academy kids around him went negative side but he found drums as his instrument and he's amazing drummer amazing he had so many it was so i was so impressed but his father who unfortunately died used to live close and then listen to play listen to him play drums um from the boys and girls club and then he saw his dad like you know on the street listening to him and uh it was just I just couldn't like stop crying. What an impact that I made to this community that I had no idea after generations that this happens and then somebody just completely changes their life path. Yeah, it's amazing how music can have a uh, such a deep effect. Um, and and I know I know this because my daughter, she's a dancer. Uh, not professional, but she's still 17. She she does these dances and I'm just, I look at these dances and it's just an interpretation. There's no words, right? Except Sometimes there's just music. Sometimes there's no music. Sometimes it's just a dance. So they, the, the art that comes through is so beautiful and it can affect you in such a profound way. I think it's extremely important and I... I think that more of that should be done. I think more more music therapy should be out there. Is there is there enough music therapy out there? So, uh, Berkeley College of Music, um, they do have the music therapy program, and um, a lot of volunteers that I had throughout Genium Voices were from music therapy major students, uh, but also music ed major students and then just regular um, music. But interestingly, music therapy sometimes um, have so many effects, but also insurance company, I think some of the insurance company take music therapists as insured covered. So I think uh, one of the pioneer, Dr. Susan Henser from the music therapy at Berkeley, uh, I think she was some of the advocate for that change. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't like, yeah, I don't like the insurance companies getting involved in all of this because, you know, you know where that can lead. Now, um, I did want to ask you before I get into the political stuff, because I do want to talk a little politics with you a little bit. Um, 
you you're uh i said you're an actress now and you kind of shied away a little bit you know that maybe you're not a but you're in a huge movie <laughs> right yes yeah and your son is in a huge movie yes so I, what i wanted to ask is what was the, what was that feeling like to be a, in a hit movie with your son it uh was absolutely surreal so when I got cast for Don't Look Up, written by Adam McKay with this mega stars, um, I had two days of shoot um, in Salisbury, Massachusetts as a Japanese reporter. And it was my first time big movie experience with the trailer and then star treatment and all that stuff. And then when I came home, like I just kind of had an epiphany, weird feeling that for some reason, I would come back to Don't Look Up. Maybe Adam McKay will write another script for a Japanese reporter. I had no idea. But then my son got this audition opportunity for multiracial children. And he auditioned in and he got the gig. And then we had to sequester in a hotel for like eight days because we didn't have COVID vaccination then. So um, he got to have a big part with Mark Rylance. So Mark Rylance, and then he was directed by Adam McKay, Oscar-winning director-writer. It's such an amazing, like, surreal experience. And then everybody remembered me um, as a Japanese reporter from the very cold shoot day. And um, Adam McKay said, he, I did a great job, so I can't ask more for that. Oh, that's that's amazing. I'm so happy for you and for your son, and I wish you continued because once you make those relationships, if it went well, I'm sure that it continues on to the next project. So super happy for you. Super uh, excited to be talking to you now. I, you are also you are a reporter. Yes, I am. Not only were you a reporter in the movie, yes. you're a reporter in real life. Yes. I'm a, a real reporter. <laughs> You're a real reporter. And yes. uh, I, I only got to read a little bit about, and I, and I want to touch on, I want to touch on human traffic and I want to touch on the Pfizer data release. I want to touch on that, but really what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine, what's, go, what's, what's going on? Because I feel like that I'm listening to, I'm trying to get as much information from the internet because, man, I also listen to mainstream media and, and, and that, but it sometimes it feels like Russia is the correct one. And sometimes it feels like the Ukraine is the correct one. So what's, what's really going on? So I really have, um, great opportunity to interview uh, Ukrainian people and the Russian people. So I, my goal as a journalist is to be as biased as possible. So I want to get a real voice, not just the major mass media, but as a journalist for the newspaper. Like I wanted to interview a fear, real feeling, history, all that stuff. Now, I live in a town called Foxborough, but also I write for the Sun Chronicle, which covers the southern part of Massachusetts. We have about maybe 30,000, 40,000 subscribers. And also online, you, you never know who's reading it. So my goal when Russia invaded 
um, started to invade um, Ukraine was to not only um, watch the news, but I just wanted to interview real people. And right away, I got this picture from this subject. He, uh, her cousin sent a missile that flew to uh, Kirkov, Kharkiv to um, just in the middle of the street. And then it just didn't explode, but it's like stuck on the road. And I got that photo and that was the front cover of the Sun Chronicle and the Fox Reporter. And when I interviewed her, um, a lot of things came up. Um, you can um, just Google Julie Love um, and then there's a bunch of articles that I wrote. And then not only her perspective about how she came to America and um, just fear and the real like people's story of her relatives and friends who are affected by it and how unfair it is. But also I just interviewed somebody from Russia and Russian people inside suffering. And then I have a friend who's from Russia and then his elderly parents because of the sanction cannot access money or food. So, so they just like planted potatoes, hoping that they can like, you know, have potatoes sometimes. Wait, the so, Russians, yeah. the, Ru the Russian family cannot, Russian family. they don't have access for food? So he, they in are Russia? Getting, they, they're getting sanctions. Then their parents are like, you no know, worried and then food, like shortage and stuff. So that basically inside of Russia, and then also I interviewed a Russian person who lives in America for a long time. But then obviously when you say war or when you say anything against the government, it's 15 years of prison nation and political prisoners are getting created because of this. And in, in Russia country, in Russia or here in America? Well in Russia. Okay. So he base he he is he has he's American now. He's in America since like seventies. So he can speak, but if you are in Russia right now and then talk about even he said even the word war that you get arrested because of so much control. So what are that so what is the, what is the word that they want to substitute for war? Invasion? Uh bring 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 them back? Any propaganda, but um I know like I saw the news, the independent radio or the TV station were banned and then only state um um, media is allowed. Facebook, Twitter got banned. So, you know, Putin's trying to uh, control the information, which is scary. And then, which actually did happen in Japan during World War II. Um, right. Well, the, propaganda is a thing of war, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's propaganda is basically saying not only the opposite of what somebody says, but then also calling them a liar at the same time. Right, that's propaganda. Propaganda is not not just lying, but also calling them the ones that gave that information liars. Meaning, it's a double. It's a it. Propaganda twists it so much that it's it makes the other person be wrong. Even if does that does that make sense? Prop, propaganda is worse than lies. Basically, I completely understand. 
but um, my point is, as a journalist, um, I just really wanted to interview the real voices. So not only the Russian um, resident, I interviewed um, veteran uh, who fought in Kazakhstan and uh, worked under U.S. embassy in Russia, um, and also um, a resident who worked for Peace Corps in Poland and then helped some refugees program. Um, so I just wanted to do a piece. I, I write, I'm a feature correspondent. So I usually write happy stories, but I've written about human trafficking summit. I've written about sexual assault, child sex abuse. I've written about the mass shooting. Um, so, you know, I think as a journalist, what's important is that I do not put my personal opinion to you, obviously, but let people talk about their opinion, being very unbiased. I wanted to write a piece from Ukrainian side and then Russian side and the real voice and what's going on and what's their fear. And also, I, I'm very, very careful of what I ask for because of the safety issues in Russia right now. So I was very sensitive about how I asked the questions, but luckily my subject was very open to my questions. And then I said, please do not answer if you don't feel comfortable. Skip any questions that I asked. So, which is great. Um, he luckily answered everything that I asked for. So it's actually, it should be published now. Uh, it's for tomorrow's paper. So it's just, um, to me, penmanship is a weapon um, against the war because more people are aware of what's going on and uh, the real voice and fear. Um, I got this picture of the train station uh, where people are trying to evacuate. It's just like a mosh pit. It's crazy people on top of each other's. And I just feel um, my fight against the war is through the journalism to advocate for people otherwise they wouldn't, that I will be completely unbiased and then completely transparent and let them speak about their voices and that would be on a newspaper and on the internet so that people can learn what's going on. So based on your interviews with both those people, what is your conclusion? Well, or my, if you don't feel comfortable answering that, you don't have to answer it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, I think um, the dictatorship is controlling everything right now that um, it should really like be ended a long time ago. I don't understand why 2022, like we have such a modern technology and then the social media world is getting closer and then closer, you know, using these social medias and still this dictatorship is going on and then one person can ruin a lot of people's lives and then it just um you don't agree with putin being a dictator still to this day well according to the media and everything that i've heard or people that i interviewed that is the person that is kind of controlling but at the same time putin was not born just alone. And this dictatorship, not just Russia or a different countries, say Japan 
like when we had this one person, basically emperor as a symbolism, I don't know, maybe somebody controlled him, somebody symbolized him, but I know like say kamikaze attack, like people just worshiped him like crazy to even sacrifice their lives. And then how would you get to that point where one person can influence so many? So I feel, I feel like, especially younger generations in Russia, a lot of people are protesting and they're getting arrested and then seeing this, you know, reality. And like, how do you escape from those, you know, dictatorship, like when you're under and then you're afraid. And, you know, that's why there's a refugee program. That's why there's some escape route and North Korea as well. Just, you know, it's kind of, I don't understand how this day and age that is allowed. And then I know this deep rooted history of, you know, people controlling people. Yet, I just feel sad and then devastated that we have to follow one person's order. Right. And that's, and that's, I think that that's the argument that a lot of people that are even in the United States right now that are feeling like, okay, we're, we're a democracy, but are we a democracy? Like the people in Canada, I don't know if you followed any of that stuff the trucker convoy and all that stuff in Canada and Justin Trudeau seizing bank accounts and, uh, and all that stuff, uh, that happened up there. But that seemed very close to what many people would say is a dictatorship, but Canada is supposed to be a democracy. So, so what I think what a lot of people are feeling is that it seems like it's a democracy, but in actuality, is it just being controlled by one or a few people? And then, and then that, isn't that a dictatorship? But if it's even if it's just five people, still a dictatorship, right? Right. Even if it's ten people, still a dictatorship because the because the masses cannot vote to have any opinion because. The, you know, 10 people that have the most money are controlling the entire system. So, and I, and I know it's very difficult to speak about this because I know you potential to lose your job. And if look, and if you want any of this not being on the podcast, I will delete it and it will never be spoken of again. But I, I want to speak to you directly as a reporter. Do we live in a democracy in the United States? Is Canada a democracy in reality? If you sift through all of the, if you get through the woods and look through the other side is, are we? Seems like we're not, but that's just me. Well, first of all, there's no um, fear of me speaking my opinion. And then I am on the same page as my manager and editor, and they are so true to themselves. And then their mission is really uh, advocate for the true voice. So none of it that I spoke would be um, would lead to me losing a job at all. Actually, they would definitely be proud of me of speaking up the truth and then bringing the true voice. Actually, my manager texted me after I wrote a story about the Ukraine and the missile, the picture, and then the interview that I conducted. Um, 
the article, he actually texted me personally and said, great job. So I don't like, no, I'm not scared of saying anything. But speaking of the democracy, living in America, I come from Japan, where um, not just the political thing, but the cultural things and then the gender inequality that I felt throughout my life till I was like 21, 22, it's bad. It's really bad. In this country, the people don't realize how much of the women rights are there and then how much of the freedom of speech are there or like um, social masks that I have to wear in Japan. Um, so democracy, not only the government side of it, but the people who live in this country are so liberated and they're so equal and the people may not think that way, but coming from Japan, where we cannot walk in front of men, men will never carry grocery, they would never like hold the door for you. It's a culture shock to me. A lot of mm. men hold the door for me or maybe carry grocery for me. Um, <laughs> I'll hold that's the door rare. for you. That's very rare. That's absolutely rare. And then my mom, for instance, um, when my first husband, we got divorced, but um, when we had a wedding, um, my father-in-law at that time let my mom go on the elevator first before him and she, she just could not do it. She just could not do it because that's, that doesn't happen in Japan. So just to answer, this is like say my grandma generation, my mom generation, you know, after World War II and then, you know, just being in the country where like girls are, the girls supposed to devote their lives to men and then just to not have opinion. And to me, it's amazing that I'm actually a journalist in this country and being able to speak out and being able to advocate such a difficult issues. And I think democracy means that freedom of speech and advocacy and in a way that a lot of countries, like say, um, I read Last Girl by uh, Nadia Murad, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, and Amal Clooney, George Clooney's wife, is representing and fighting against ISIS, trying to um, bring justice to ISIS for the human trafficking, sex trafficking. Those are the situations that I can think of that extreme like freedom taken away um, that you know, genocide and then wiped away the tribes and then getting sex trafficked by these um, terrorist groups. Now, I feel no matter what kind of situation you are in, you have to think about the histories, you have to think about at large and then the cultural background where if you were to live in different country right now, what kind of democracy do you have? What kind of freedom do you have? And then what is... See. Right. Yeah. You do, so, th th there's no bigger freedom than there is in the United States of America right now. There's no bigger freedoms. And that has always been, you know, but and I don't want to say that that the United States wasn't a free uh, democracy throughout. I'm just saying right now, does it feel like that they're trying to infringe on our rights the, the, the same way that it happened to Canada? Can that happen here in the United States? And it is, there's little evidence, very little evidence that it's happening here in the United States, but it's happening in certain ways, like the January 6th insurrection, right? There's still people locked up 
that didn't even go into the Capitol, but got face recognition software that are still locked up in uh, isol- uh, solitary confinement. Nobody's talking about that. They're still locked up. They've been locked up, and they and 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 and, and if you know a little bit of the laws, apparently, if you are considered a domestic terrorist, you get locked up, and you have no chance for trial, no chance for parole because you're considered a terrorist. That's written into the American law. So let's just say you speak out, right? Like in Russia, they say they speak out against calling it a war. Now that person's considered a terrorist. Who is that said that? Take them, put them in jail, lock them up, no chance to be able to get out. It's happening in the US, but nobody's talking about it. <laughs> it's crazy. Only a few people are talking about it. This is the only reason I know about it is because a few people are talking about it. But it's very difficult to talk about because guess what? They could come arrest you and you be locked up. So people don't talk about it, you know? Yeah, I know. Um, it's uh, very sensitive. And then um, the laws, I don't know ins and out at all. But I would say that um, there's always a risk of speaking out. And then there's always not just the political things, even the, for instance, domestic violence situations. Some people get on a podcast, talk about, you know, the relationship. And then next thing you know, you're going to be like accused. And then, yeah, you, know, you get canceled with cancel culture. But that's that's a little bit of terrorism. That's media terrorism, you know, yeah. trying to knock some trying to knock people out of the spotlight is what it is. But. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that um, as a journalist, I feel <laughs> empowered in a way that um have written over 400 articles so far and have great feedback from people and then getting gratitude of people who I've written article for. Um, I feel absolutely empowered and I feel absolutely um, responsible for each words that I put out there as a journalist. And even when I'm doing a podcast or um, as a filmmaker or um I volunteer at the Fox or Cable Access, and I feel responsible of my word because it's going to stay forever once it's published. Yeah, and uh, look, I don't, uh, and obviously this is a back and forth. I'm not saying anything that I say is what I think. I'm not saying that you agree with it or disagree with it. You haven't agreed or disagreed in one way or the other. So, you know, everything that I just said was just my particular feelings. I was just wanting to understand if you felt that the our freedom of speech is getting squeezed down to where we get canceled if we talk too much. And and then in that sense, and then in that in that sense, at what level are we a dictatorship? Because there could be levels of dictatorship, right? I mean, you could be a dictatorship and, okay, you're definitely a dictator, dictator like in North Korea. But let's just say in, you know, if you want to, if you want to candy coat it, that's an American term, candy coat it so that it looks like a democracy, 
but it, but then you have to filter out all the things to and but it's really only a few people really running like what's going on I, i'm sorry when i start to talk about politics right now i get really uh i get really i get really excited in a, in a in a way where i I don't know exactly where to go because there's so many areas that I want to go. And I know you're very focused. Um, so my question is, free speech, are our rights on free speech being infringed on in America? And I want to go back to Canada for just a little bit uh, after you answer that question. Sorry. Um. I would say I'm not really a political expert. And I, again, as a journalist, my job is to be as neutral as possible and as unbiased as possible. That is absolutely my job because if I start to get biased or have extreme opinion in this side or that side, I can never interview people. I can never be neutral. And I, just don't want to influence my opinion into this job. However, if I don't think about me as a journalist, I would say the most important thing is have a perspective of where you live. And if you don't want to live here, obviously you can go somewhere else. Like I moved myself from Japan, which I really didn't like that. I didn't even have a freedom of speech. I didn't even have I had freedom of speech, but the social pressure was way too much as a woman and as a young woman who was liberated by rock and roll mother <laughs> who had a rock cafe and then raised me with Janis Joplin and Led Zeppelin and then like Woodstock that I just felt so different. And then I just didn't feel comfortable being in Japan. And that's why I'm in this country and enjoying this freedom. So as much as you think of maybe infringed, um, go to Japan and be a woman and then grow up there and then appreciate what you don't have or what you do have. I think it's all about perspective. No matter what happens, I would still choose America. I would still choose living in this country because of the amount of pressure and an amount of brainwash that I experienced, which I didn't even realize. So I would say just be neutral and then if you do have the opinion like sometimes it's out of your control unless as, as you are a politician and then trust me um i interviewed a lot of politi politicians and then when they were running i was interviewing a lot of candidates and then i actually had a really great story about joe kennedy the third and it's just so inspiring to me a lot of politicians as much as some people have opinions about politicians, I met greatest politicians I met. I had interacted with amazing politicians who care about people who are from like my situation or like anybody else, but who happen to be very passionate about system change. So I just want to um, share a quick story about Joe Kennedy III, which was just so inspiring to me that I was actually a piano player for his um, fundraiser at former U.S. Embassy's um, house, Amazon's house. And then he had this speech to this uh, campaign uh, supporters, maybe like 40, 50 people, not big. 
what he what he told us was he is aware of his privilege being Kennedy and then went to Stanford and become became a lawyer but he did the Peace Corps in Dominican Republic and then met this man who was the same age as him. And there was no way that he could catch up the privilege and education that um, Joe Kennedy III had. So then he realized, what can I do using this privilege? Then he realized that it's a systematic change. So that's why he ran for the politics. And now it's, you know, going up the ladder and then from the Senate to Congress to, you know, who knows, he might run for the president of the United States. Is he the well, one that is he the one that has the book that's the number one bestseller right now? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know. Maybe Joe Kennedy the third. Is he does he have a like uh, uh trouble speaking a little bit? Like no, uh, uh so that's not that's not the Kennedy. Okay, so there's another Kennedy that's being very political, speaking out against uh, COVID and the uh, mandates and all this uh it's, it sounds very conspiratorial but uh he's he is a kennedy and uh yeah so so what was what's the what's the kennedys the one that you're talking about which kennedy is that because there's a lot of them joe joe kennedy the third joe j joe, joe kennedy the third j-o-e okay. kennedy the third third okay i don't think that's the same Kennedy, no. so sorry. But my point is, though, like, you know, when I heard him speech and personal level, and he's such an eloquent speaker, um, and I was just touched by him being so aware of his privilege and the brand of Kennedy. And, you know, he could just stay at home and then be comfortable and rich and whatever the power that he has. But instead, he really so the needs of systematic change and he's fighting for it and then so what i'm saying and then i interviewed joe arkincloth which is a congressman of the massachusetts district number four and i know senator feeney when i actually had the film tax incentive um bill that was that sag after like you know, all the union actors are fighting for or actors are fighting for i had three politicians co-sponsor me uh to fight for to keep the tax incentive in massachusetts so more films gonna come and then film here so i did that so i had privilege to of just not only um as a journalist but you know activist in the community that i got to interact with these politicians and then i think a lot of a lot of politicians are doing a great job and then fighting for our rights. I think I think you're you're like a true inspiration, honestly. Like I I will follow. You. Have you had any aspirations yourself of running for office? Some people told me about it. I think you should. I think I think that you're a breath of fresh air. I think that you're real i think that i believe you and i think that that's what congress needs nobody believes any of these politicians anymore even if there are good ones in there there's so many bad ones that nobody believes the american public doesn't believe in anybody i mean look at i don't want to get jailed but look at the <laughs> the our current president you know, like gas prices are just ridiculous right now. And he was recently just asked, 
what are you doing about gas prices? Right, because we have things we can do about gas prices, like open up the pipeline, the Keystone pipeline, at least to relieve a little bit. You can shut it back down if things, but to at least to to serve the American people, you could open up that pipeline. You could open it up right now because you're the president of the United States, and that pipeline is in the United States and in Canada, right? So. So he's not so he's so he's getting in his helicopter. This is crazy footage. And he says, uh, I can't do anything about that right now. This is this is your president speaking. I can't do anything about that right now. Yeah, you can. Okay, but that's what he says. I can't do anything about this right now. It it's Russia's fault. That's what he says. That's what he says. Okay. Oh, uh, I mean, you know, it's just. Uh, it just makes me so angry that somebody can lie to such a level that it just is like, all right, we're just supposed to accept that lie. You know, right? Like who who can do anything about this, right? Not me or me, I guess, by saying this, I don't know. Just is absolutely nuts. And um uh, I, I would love for you to be in Congress. I would love for you to run in 2022. You should. Oh you should God. throw your name in the hat. You should throw your name in the hat. Look at all the accolades you have. You were in a, not, you're a movie star. I mean, maybe not the star of the movie, but you starred in a movie, so you're a movie star. Doesn't matter what role you had, but you were a movie star, right? Thank you. Yeah, you know what? I actually like thought about it at one point and then somebody really like a lot of people told me about it. But I'm not sure. I'm a single mom. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have time. I well, I have, you know, I have crazy jobs anyways. But at the same time though, like I feel um what? I feel that sometimes after especially running nonprofit and then seeing the DYS system and then seeing a lot of, you know, politics around it, I got really fed up. And then I felt like, how can one person from Japan change systematically? But you're right. You know, if I run for office, maybe I could be influential. That's right. Now you're in the position to be able to make those rules. That's right. Get yourself in a position to make the rules. That way you can affect the change not just with music, but with literal laws, <laughs> you know, writing. It, it, I think... Uh, wouldn't that be crazy after That would be crazy. That would be crazy to her. Like, yeah. you know, oh, you told me to be a politician, and I guess what happened. <laughs> well, if, any, if anybody can do it, it's you. If anybody can do it, if, if anybody that has... The, look, I... I when I was uh, figuring out who you were, I was like, oh, she's a musician. Ah, oh, oh wait, she's a journalist too. Oh, oh, wait, she's also a model. Oh, oh, and now an actor. Ah, and then a single mom of two kids. I was like, how many more jobs do you want? Might as well be a congresswoman. Might as well add that to the list. I, I would vote for you. I, I, I honestly, honestly, th this 
this world needs real people like you. You are so it. kind. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, no, I don't. Yeah, of course. And uh, yeah, we'll end this interview with this because I know uh, we've, we've been on for a long time, but I, I do I do hope that you choose to. And if you do choose to, please reach back out to me because you will have my vote and I will I will hunt down people to vote for you if <laughs> this is true. Look, it's 2022. It's time to throw your names in the hats right now. Right now, you throw your names in the hats. It's right around the corner. Yeah, I feel, you know what? I feel like I don't know much. You don't like, have to know much. You just have to believe. But um, I, I do actually believe in advocacy. And I do believe in um, justice. And then I do believe in vulnerability that, especially as Asian women in America, um, I feel vulnerable at moments but I also I feel a little bit in a way advantage contributing to the diversity part of it that I feel I have enough experience of both countries and also being filmmaker tv producer journalist and acting all these kind of aspects of not just the entertainment part but deep inside of what's going on and then what's the need. I think that's the most important thing in the politics is that a lot of people, a lot of politicians are from which white privilege, like, you know, background, a lot of them. And then a lot of them do not understand being abused or being violent, uh, violated and being homeless. And then self-made part of it, maybe they were kind of spoon-fed um but some people are not like that but at the same time if I were to maybe run my strength would be having experienced this this adversity in my life that I can sympathize and then empathize and you know bring the true true fight um to the table and being an absolute advocate and fight for the voices otherwise wouldn't be heard so what, uh, what do you do my speech? <laughs> well, no, I agree. I agree with that. But not only that, but the veracity, like nobody's going to be able to lie to you and you be like, no, right? Nobody's going to be able to say a lie to you and then you not understand the lie. You know, you know what's right. You know what's wrong because you grew up that way. You know what's feels right you know what feels wrong nobody's going to be able to lie to you and that's what is going to make you the greatest congresswoman maybe president i don't know we don't want to we don't want to go that far that's one one step at a time one person at a time remember like how like how that guy said absolutely you know one one patient at a time you know i will actually look into it because i had an opportunity for organization that actually supports minority women more minority women to for for more minority women to be in house or congress because there are not so many of us no 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 so there was actually there was organization but you have to pay for it um to be able for them to basically create a campaign for potential minority 
um, woman candidate? Well, I've ne- I, I don't know. I've just recently come into politics because of COVID and how it tried to shut down my small business. And I know how hard it's working. The, the whole system is working to shut down small businesses. So that's why I'm an advocate, right? Uh, but I don't know how to run campaigns or anything. But if you need any help, if you say, I want to do this, you know, I know how to make posters. I know how to create content on social media. I know how to, I know how to do some stuff. I, I've never done this before, but I will be in your team for free. You don't have to pay me a dime. I, I, I will be on your team for free if you decide that this is something that you want to do. And I guarantee you will probably have a lot of support. I mean, why don't you get Jennifer Lawrence to back you up? Maybe not. I don't know what her political views are, but hey, see the resources that you have? Right? Leonardo DiCaprio? I don't know. I don't think he, but I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. You know, but. uh, Well, thank you so much for enlightening me and then encouraging me. And I did at one point definitely thought about it because of the frustration and then because of the system that I've seen and then because of things that I learned, but at the same time, there's a risk and there's energy. But there's always a risk with everything. And you proved with risking everything that you risk. I mean, you've already risked as much as you can. Here's, I'll leave you with this. I think that this, I think that this will, I think I'm supposed to say this to you. Think about your children. You would be doing this for them. If for anybody else, you would be setting up a future that you feel like that is the future that you wished that you had. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love you. I love you, Jerry Love. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Oh man, you you were an amazing guest. And uh, (laughs) yes, let's go, Jerry Love. The perfect name for the next president. Ah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I just want to shout out to Liam as well for connecting us. Oh, I love him. Yeah, thank you so much. And I had a great time with you. And then good luck for all your upcoming shows. And thank we'll- you. Uh, oh, but uh, real quick, uh, I, we plugged them anyway. But if you'd want to plug where people can uh, find you and everything like that, let's go ahead and do that. Sure. So I, uh, I'm on Facebook. You can just put Jury Love, and Instagram is Jury at Jury Panda. Um, I have several Instagram pages, but you can just like Google me, Jui, J-U-R-I-L-O-V-E. And my website is my name, JuiLove.com. And I think just Google my name and then you'll see what I've done. Well, she has done a lot and she's about to do a lot more. Thank you so much, Jerry Love. Absolutely. The best. So All right. Have a beautiful evening. You too. Bye. Bye.